Twas the week between Christmas and New Year's. What do you usually do with this time? This seems to be a real lazy time. Yeah, I I, I think that's sort of the the cultural norm that we've all finally um, accepted among each other that yeah. <laughs> that we don't do anything this week. Yeah, I guess we need to keep it up. Yeah, I even uh, read a, a, a Instagram or a, a tweet that I. Uh, I shared on my story on Instagram. It says these six days between Christmas and New Year's is the only time of year you should strive to do absolutely fucking nothing. Make zero progress. Take all the time off. Go on vacation from your vacation. Be the least impressive version of yourself. Transform into a couch. I'm I'm down with that. How about you? <laughs> uh, being a bachelor homeowner, I've got stuff to do always projects always yeah i I definitely know what you mean i mean i had to get up and and just pick up you know from our christmas dinner yesterday and and do all of that maybe get to some laundry and anyway great time to be lazy but a great time as well to be grateful especially for our friends over at salestina salestina is classical music's wingman by day they're world-class performers and studio musicians who played on your favorite films but by night they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was is and can be more on salestina here in a few minutes but i I wanted to since we're in between you know christmas and new year's it's kind of also a time when holiday music is still acceptable maybe not preferred Uh, (laughs) depending on who you are but acceptable so there's just a one thing one one little recap from christmas i wanted uh to make sure i shared here on triloquy tell the people because i'm not the only one who, who didn't know Tell the people a little bit about Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Sure. You know, the same studio that did all the Muppets and associated with Sesame Street. Sure. All that sort of thing. They put uh, out a Christmas show called Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas done with a combination of puppets, marionettes, and, you know, miniature model camera work. Yeah. And it's most certainly in that category of American classical music, at least if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Here's my favorite track from it. It's called Ain't No Hole in Washington. That's right. There ain't no hole in the Washington. that mean to you proverbially speaking when it ain't no hole in the wash tub that means when stuff is going okay that's right things are going okay that's right you've got water in the wash tub so that means you got work which means you probably got a little bit of money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was this something that you would say was culturally <laughs> aligned with your sort of idea of music when you know you were watching this growing up did, did you hear the song and hear the music uh throughout the special and and hear yourself or or, or feel uh, you know, not marketed to, you know, certainly not as a child, but do you mm-hmm. think they successfully targeted you in the musical production of this, I guess is what I'm asking. Probably at my age at that point, I would have been more attracted to the fact that they were puppets and marionettes and things like that. Okay. So it was cute. But right? it wasn't foreign. Well, they aren't singing right. Italian arias right. at the and same see, time. The thing is, is you talk about it uh, being a classic. I don't remember it catching hold. I think it was played for maybe three or four years mm. around Christmas. And then 
probably viewership was low compared to your Charlie Browns and Rudolphs and things like that. I don't remember it really catching on. A hidden classic a hidden gem. movie. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's in my rotation now. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you for putting that on my radar. Uh, you know, I think about all of these incredible singers and actors who <laughs> were the voices behind these puppets. Mm-hmm. And it just brings up the conversation that there are so many people who, you know, were famous in music, comedy, acting, who, you know, ended up at least at some point of their career being the voice behind a character. And we learned that this evening about someone who uh, we learned a little bit more about Scatman Crothers. Mm -hmm. So just for context for people, one of my personal Christmas traditions is to watch The Shining on Christmas Day. Okay. And I know that people think I'm just strange, but in the same way that I love to sort of like nod off to the dog show on Thanksgiving, unless it's getting good, because it was good this year. <laughs> I feel that way about The Shining. Just, you know, around 4 or 5 p.m. on Christmas Day, you've had some to eat, you've opened presents, you know, you've gotten settled into that notch in the couch. Let's cut on the shine. So let's turn up the creep factor. <laughs> I just love it. Anyway, so uh, Scatman Crothers was uh, Mr. Halloran mm-hmm. in in the uh, mm-hmm. in the shine and the cook, the black cook. Um, and I I noticed for the first time this year, you know, watching the credits, I actually took the time to see the name of this black man who was you know in in, in this film the you know the first one to die of course <laughs> you know going up there trying to help everybody. He's trying to help. See that's see that's what some of us need to learn about. This doing good. He should have stayed down at home with Period. his with Period. his with his velvet paintings. <laughs> anyway, um, I, I, I bothered to you know pay enough attention to the credits to see who Dick Halloran was or, or who this actor was. So um, I now know the name Scatman Crothers. I asked you if you were familiar, you know, with any of his music with a first name like Scatman. Mm-hmm. I figured he had to have been some sort of musician. Yeah. You, were, were you familiar with his musical the old, stuff? Yeah, it's all the old timey vibe. But even now, if you go over to YouTube and search his name, Ain't She Sweet is one of the first things that comes up. Yeah. And I don't know much about his life past past that i don't know what his you know his activism was like or anything like that well as far as you know we were talking about being the voice behind characters and different things Mm -hmm. he was the voice of hong kong fooey which i know existed that was a little before me but um (laughs) he was the voice of uh scat cat and aristocats which is a classic you know I, i definitely know that film but as we were sort of going through some of his musical performances uh on on the internet we sat down and um, and found a, a a collaboration between him and Red Fox. That's right. Really, really charming to hear, actually. Let's listen to a little bit of that. You got it, Fred Dick, baby. Yo, goodbye. Left me with mine. How can I? Oh, this is a big one coming up now. You took the best. So come get the Oh, yeah. 
You know, one of my highlights of the Christmas season was watching Red Fox sing unironically, unjokingly the Christmas song on mm-hmm. one of the episodes of, of Sanford and Son. So to hear his voice there with Scat Band Carruthers, it, it makes me think about uh, the risk of losing this classic American form of music. Maybe they talk about that in music history at, at Juilliard and all these uh, conservatories. I don't know. Maybe they are. But just in case they aren't, do you think that we are we run any risk of, of, of losing our memory and appreciation of this squarely American music? We, we can talk about the way that uh, segregation and Jim Crow back in the day, you know, kept kept those traditions out of certain classrooms, yeah. certain spaces. But we all have access to the Internet and, and all of those things these days. Is it worth a revisit to what that type of jazz was and sounded like? I worry about that all the time, Garrett, about things being lost. You hear about all these composers with their missing pages and lost movements. And yeah. They're supposed to have a, a catalog that was twice as big, but they something happened. You know, all those stories. I worry about it all the time. Even when you talk about moving from one medium to the next, yeah. meaning from um, records to cassettes, you know, when you make that transition, you lose stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and now look at us. Now we're trying to get rid of the CDs because we have all the playlists on our streaming devices and we're back to buying vinyl. Yeah. Yeah. But, I, no, I do. But like you're saying, I do worry about that. And and why wouldn't we want to go back and at least spend some time revisiting these classics just to have firm footing on where we're coming from? Yeah. And I know this podcast is called Triloquy. I'm, not trying, to, I'm not trying to be spicy. But the thing is, when I listen to that music, I sing singularly, squarely hear something that is American classical. I feel like there are uh, Ukrainian and Polish and, uh, you know, other sorts of folk songs and folk musics that we can make a case for in our classical programming. We, we aren't there yet when it comes to this type of cultural music, folk music, this type of, of mm-hmm. classical music. No, I agree. I can talk about, and I think justifiably so, the connections between that reality and systemic racism. If we're going to consider that and try to consider other things, are there other things that you can point to as to the barrier that that music has as far as classical music, as far as it being venerated as that, as it should be? Where are we on the timeline? Because you can tell stories about Rodrigo and his music elevated the guitar to the orchestral stage, elevated it from a folk instrument to the orchestral stage. But did it? I mean, are there guitars just sitting there every day now? You make me think about Piazzolla, you know, dance music becoming concert hall music, becoming mm-hmm. classical mm-hmm. radio music. So I just hope that, you know, we, we we can't solve this problem in particular today, but I do hope it's something that we can, can continue to think about more and more because that's American classical music. That's, sure. that's just that. And, you know, we, we, we have to uh, remember why we don't really know or we haven't centered that music and we need to face the facts as to why we're continuing to make that decision. Um, you know, and, and all of this is wrapped up, you know, in, in this final week of the year, final week of every year, we have this, uh, this holiday known as Kwanzaa, you know, where we try to really think about black centric stuff. We, you know, roll about on the uh, seven uh, principles that, that go along with, with the holiday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
as we talk about those bridges, taking this American classical music and putting it up on the podium that it deserves, there, there are means everywhere for different types of communities to really understand and celebrate Blackness in the best way we can, especially through music. A story mm-hmm. that I tell every year that I'll continue to tell uh, every Kwanzaa season, at least when we're recording Triloquy, is the impact that my high school, one of my high school band directors uh, had on me, Paula Turner. Shout out to Paula Turner, also my high school music theory teacher, you know, making the point every holiday program. Remember, we were talking about if it's going to be a holiday concert, it needs to be that mm-hmm. if you're not just going to have Christmas music and anyway. Right. So she really, you know, put her foot in her hand and, and so to speak. To, to make that happen by including a piece of music on the holiday programming called Imani. It's a, a work for band written by Sean O'Loughlin. I, I don't think Sean O'Loughlin is, is Black. And if I'm mistaken, please correct me. But I only mention that to say this is someone, Black or not, who took the time to dedicate a piece of music to this very specific holiday as a means of teaching the next generation, you know, teaching band kids. This isn't a work that went on some commission by the New York Philharmonic. This is something that in most of its recordings, you're hearing middle schoolers and maybe high schoolers mm. play this music. And I think that intentionality deserves uh, noting and is something that I celebrate every year. The recording, of course, that I always share in my content and my Kwanzaa special shout out to all the radio stations who uh, took the sound of Kwanzaa this year, my uh, my radio special. But the, the recording that I use is by the Washington Winds. So there it, mm. there is at least one professional recording of it. And it's just one of those tunes I, I return to each and every year. It's it's a part of this part a part of this time of the year and something that, you know, I really appreciate. Here's a little bit of Imani uh, by Shauna Laughlin. something for all of the what was the hotep's name on uh <laughs> on, on on uh well what's the classic tv show uh not the jeffersons good times michael i think his name was michael on on good times you know so mm. something for the kids the black kids who go to school <laughs> just all the way ready to just say something <laughs> about the teacher's music programming or whatever but but we have a, a music teacher a composer a system that you know created that reality for mm-hmm. me and uh, for me it's just it's it's so special and it it it, it it's the is the pinhole of light you know when we talk about decolonizing the 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 ecosystem the, the even the phrase classical music we have generations of kids now who have been exposed to music even within the parameters of band or band programs music that speaks to something broader speaks to something different and something that more people can can actually uh connect to we you know we're we're taping this on the first day of Kwanzaa marked by the principle of omoja or unity and you know when 
when I lit the canara earlier this evening, you know, we kind of went around talking about what unity looks like to us. What does unity look like to you? To, to me, it's a feeling. It's a feeling of support, mm-hmm. uh, a feeling of connection. Uh, like you have people that believe the same thing you do, and it, it's not so scary what you're facing if you have somebody with you. Yeah, I think unity, um, as, as I was saying you know, earlier today, it requires that joint uh, destination. I think it's obvious at this point that many of us, especially in arts advocacy, you know, DEI, those sorts of things, we have various opinions, various varying opinions about how things should happen, how we have dialogue, how we deal with inequities in the field. We, we all have different opinions on how that should happen. Maybe if that destination is the same, we can figure out the details as we as we go along. Do you think there's a lack of that part of the conversation really determining where we're going and instead arguing more about how we're getting to the place where we haven't even decided we're going yet? Right. So basically you're saying we're probably not going to agree on the steps to get to the common goal. Right. Okay, right. Okay, got it. So for example, if we're talking about radio programming, <laughs> we 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 know my approach, you uh-huh. know, to 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 doing that. Uh-huh. You know, Everyone's approach doesn't have to be mine, but I think there has to be an approach. There has to be movement in the direction. You know, again, when I you know think about unity being connected to shared um, a, a shared aspiration, a shared destination, I think there just has to be movement. And it's hard to have these conversations sometimes when you feel like there are parties, there are individuals, there are institutions who say they want to go there, but have their feet planted, so to speak. You know, mm. they don't you don't see that 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 forward momentum. Mm-hmm. We can talk about, you know, what the the forward momentum that happens behind the scenes rather in front of the scenes all day, but I think if if we can just unite on moving in a direction toward a place that, you know, we have decided we want to go, you know, when when we talk about what programming looks like, what we want audiences to look like, maybe that's a good first step. What do you think? Determining the destination and then figuring out the the details along the way. I feel like I've advocated for this before and gotten lit up for it. Oh yeah. No, saying that you know we need people that are working at different levels of things. Mm-hmm. Not everybody is on is in the same spot. You know, like we said, where are we in the timeline? Mm-hmm. Some people are only beginning to open their eyes, and all of this sort of talk is still very uh, accusatory. Like mm-hmm. they feel like they're being. Yeah. Uh, um, so they're being singled out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think what you're speaking to is the fact that unity requires trust. If I trust that at your level, you know, you're you're making some some movement forward, then there, there's nothing to really argue about. You know, we're we're on the same team and all of that. So I think that unity is just going to require some trust. Trust is not one of the seven principles of Kwanzaa, oh. but maybe that can be a sub. Uh, a subcategory of of unity, really doing what we can to develop that trust among each other so that we have that unity, so that we're all moving in the same direction of decolonizing classical music. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final opus of the year. Let's jump in.
Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy Opus 180. Thank you so much to everyone who has returned week after week to help us keep this podcast going. We could not do this without your support. Thank you so much. If this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase and the idea, the concept of classical music and works to decolonize it by approximating that phrase to stories, to pieces of music, and to general dialogue that haven't necessarily been affixed to that phrase, to that culture, but things that we think belong in that pot of what is considered classical music, at least from our perspectives. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to listen to past opuses, and to contribute to the project, visit our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Salestina. They have all sorts of really incredible programming that also works toward the decolonization of classical music, really renewing and refreshing what that can be. And one of the ways that they do that is through a program that highlights and uh, and centers in-person and virtual performances. Well, if you'll go to Salestina's uh, website right now on December 30th, if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, you still have time to potentially check this out. On December 30th, they're doing an old school virtual happy hour that is a TAR watch party and discussion. I have yet to see TAR. There are a lot of people who I owe a conversation mm-hmm. about this film. We've talked about it, it on Triloquy, you know, the, the news stories and things. So maybe during this lazy week <laughs> but uh, but between now and new year's i could take the time to stream that or or watch it but anyway if you want to be a part of the uh, virtual watch party with salestina you still have time it's going down on friday uh, december 30th you can find more information on that at salestina.org huge shout out and thanks to everyone over at salestina for your continued support of the triloquy podcast the one and only vj Iyer is this week's third movement guest looking forward to sharing my conversation uh, that I have with him with y'all. In the finale, we have some end-of-year reflections uh, that Scott and I are going to explore. But I would say, Scott, we have a a pretty pretty juicy first movement that's right to get into. So let's go ahead and jump into it. All right, we're going to get started with your accidental. What what accidental will you give this story that you're going to (laughs) share? I'm giving this a sharp. Okay, let's hear it. What yep. you got? Um, this is hot off the presses. Uh, ink still wet. This came out earlier this afternoon. I'm reading from the New York Times.com, NYTimes.com. Pandemic woes lead Met Opera to tap endowment and embrace new work. Facing- oh, oh. <laughs> what, what a fucking surprise. Go on. How the turntables have. <laughs> Turn. I hate to say it. I hope I don't sound ridiculous. I don't know who this man is. Because I, because I, I have, you know, I and the scores of people out here in the arts field, you know, we just been talking to the brick wall, I guess. Oh, until now. Money is on the table. Money is being lost. So now we're exploring new operas. Right. Facing tepid ticket sales, the company will withdraw up to $30 million from its endowment and stage more operas by living composers, which have been outselling the classics. Mm, mm, so mm. Uh, first, for those who don't know, an endowment is... So an endowment is a pot of money that uh, maybe 
that exists in the corporate world and the financial world, I'm not sure, but as far as nonprofits are concerned, it's the pot of money that sort of serves as the foundation of an organization. Uh, uh, interest or percentage of the interest is taken out uh, every year or, or however the, the schedule is for the organization to sort of help the organization stay afloat. But the point is, you have this piggy bank of money so that you can live and and survive as a as an organization. When you start dipping into that pot, things are going wrong. I think this article says it, but you know, even my understanding is that that is a last ditch effort. That that is, you know, if there is nothing else you can do. I've heard of nonprofits uh, taking out loans on their endowment, you know, that they pay back. So straight right, out dipping right. into it because you need to do something. That's that's a big deal. Okay. That, that's when people are in trouble. And they say that the Mets endowment was valued at three hundred six million. Is that a lot? I mean, of course, three hundred six million sounds like a lot to me. I think this right. article says that for an organization of their size and their statue, that's relatively small. That is one of the things um, they are quoting. Peter Gelb near the top here. The challenges are greater than ever. He's referring to trying to remount. Um, uh, trying to get a season going again after a pandemic shutdown. Yeah. And folks, we have the receipts right here on Triloquy. You can go back and listen to past episodes where we have talked at length about will this be the moment when arts organizations take the opportunity to chart a new path or will they go to the canon to try to recoup some money? Should people not feel a way? And I know that you can't say how people should feel, but you know, is it, I'll say, is it reasonable for people to point out the fact that we're having this conversation because money has come into the conversation? The Met is having to dig into the endowment, so now they're going to try something different. It wasn't because the audiences were looking one kind of way. It's not because community engagement wasn't whatever it needed to be. It's because there was some money at, 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 at stake. Should, should we not feel a way? Well, again, you can't tell us how we should feel. Is it fair to point that out? Is, is it fair to throw that little pebble into the pump? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm just sorry to see that some of these organizations are coming around late. Sure. Because there were people who have been the canary in the coal mine mm -hmm. trying to say that, you know, uh, <laughs> you need to start shifting your business model and tweaking your programming. Yeah. But um, to further quote Peter Gelb, the only path forward is reinvention. Well, on the Trilogy podcast, we've been talking about that for three-ish years, but uh, nonprofit organizations try to dip into their endowments only as their last resort, as, as uh, Garrett was saying. This season at the Met, it is turning to the endowment to cover operating expenses to help offset weak ticket sales and a cash shortfall that emerged as some donors were reluctant to accelerate pledged gifts among the stock market downturns. So as more cash gifts materialize, the company hopes to replenish the endowment. Mm -hmm. The connection between stock market, financier, culture, ecosystems, and the arts may not be what people uh think about front of mind, you know, when they hear an institution like the Met Opera, I, I really appreciate that that uh, correlation is, is drawn very clearly here because what that says to me, as, as many nonprofits are exploring, the way that funding happens itself 
has to be different. We have to talk about diversity, not only with audience bases, we have to talk about diversity with funding bases. Now, Mm -hmm. as someone who has spent 30 years fundraising, you know, multiple times a year in a very community on the ground, as close to the ground as a public radio station can get way, Mm -hmm. do you have words of encouragement or words of warning for an institution like the Met exploring more community-centric fundraising? The idea of having a broad base, I believe, is what you need. You want a lot of people giving a little bit of money, mm-hmm. maybe $10 a month. The reason for that is if you, – because you're, lo- you're going to lose listeners. They'll die. They'll, their tastes will change. They'll um, lose hearing for whatever reason. Sure. You, know, you, you can come up with all sorts of reasons that people might stop listening uh, uh, to your programming. Um, refresh my, uh, so you wanted to know if I had encouragement or, yeah. So here's the problem. When you have somebody that swoops in with a big check, Mm -hmm. yeah, it saves that season and the end and the, the musicians get paid in that. Right. But what happens when that pledge is no longer there? You've got a big gaping hole in your budget now. Yeah. So that's why you want a whole bunch of people giving a little bit of money because if you, uh, lose a few there. It's th- those holes are usually plugged by new small donations. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. Now, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. I have done plenty of the public radio pledge drives myself, and it's not all. <laughs> it's not always pretty. I'll say it's not always. That's right. You know, so enjoyable. At the same time, there is such a feeling of accomplishment when you do meet that hour's goal or that day's goal or, you know, you're, day, you're there on day six and you just cross the finish line with what you needed when everyone comes into work on a Saturday or, or whatever. Right. So I, I think in addition to being a, you know, safer, if, I, if I'm going to use a word like that, a, a safer way of doing fundraising, it creates sort of a team effort. You know, I'm also thinking about what it would look like, you know, in public radio, it's the hosts that really are on the front line of of talking to the people and asking them to donate or whatever. It is. Um, We could do that in opera when it comes to some of these big stars, you know, shout out and congratulations to Lemmy Pulliam. I don't know if we mentioned that last week. He had his Met uh, debut oh, okay, last yeah, week, which is, yeah. which was a, a huge deal, you know. But if you get your Lemmy Pulliams, if you get you know uh, uh, Yannick, you know the the conductor of the uh, of the orchestra, if you get some of the faces of this institution out front in the in a similar way that public radio hosts, you know, solicit. So I almost said solicit for tips, solicit for <laughs> donations. <laughs> Very that good. that could that could be a thing, and now we're talking about collaborations between public radio stations and the Met. You know, training and you know best tips, or maybe you uh, you dedicate uh, a, a day of of uh, your programming as a radio station to having the, these people coming in and do anyway. I, I'm, sure. I can spit out ideas sure. all sure. day, but as we're seeing what has been what has been happening, that time has run out. They're they're right. digging into the endowment, so whatever happens. Something needs to happen on the fundraising level. It says here that while their previous audience base were, uh, they preferred war horses like La Boheme and Aida and Carmen like that. It says the Met staged more new work in recent years. That dynamic has begun to shift, Mm -hmm. a change that has grown more pronounced since the pandemic. While attendance has been generally anemic, contemporary works, including Fire Shut Up In My Bones, Drew sell out crowds, whereas Verity's Don Carlo, 40% 
attendance throughout the performance. Not only did I get in an airplane and stay in a hotel, you know, I bought a ticket, you know, to go see Fire Shut Up On My Bones. You know, I I planned to uh, be in New York to see Malcolm X, you know, uh, shout out to Anthony Davis, member of the Triloquy family. Can't wait to see that. Can't wait to see audience reaction to that because, you know, they were shitting on Malcolm X back in the day, weren't they? And now he's on y'all stage, at least a depiction of what uh, uh, he he stood for and the work that he did in his life. So I will definitely be there for that. If, If that is my impetus, to go. I'm sure that's the impetus for many, many more people who, you know, folks who even don't have to get on an airplane, folks who uh, live there in New York, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, 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 community uh, uh, audience members, potential audience members that, you know, all of a sudden now you have their attention. So as I say, week after week, the new music, the new programming, the contemporary program, I will never and I can never see that as a risk. I see it as a surefire way to get a new audience at the very least, a renewed audience, and maybe even a broader audience and one that can, you know, help the organization stay afloat financially. I I, I wanted to uh, skip down to the last bit of of this article from the New York Times. uh, They've quoted uh, Yannick here in, uh, in, in the finale. It says, I want everyone to feel welcome at the Met. Will they fall in love with every opera we do? Of course not. But I don't want anyone to say the Met is not for me. I'm encouraged by that perspective because, yes, while I think uh, a person can become a fan of an institution, of an organization, and support whatever happens, even if they don't like it, even if they aren't interested, while I do think that that is a possibility, I do like the aspiration of having something for somebody. You know, not everything for everybody, but something for everyone. Now, there are certain conversations that we have to have when we really talk about what it looks like to, in a season's time, have something for absolutely anyone. We have to start talking about, you know, from my perspective, uh, the integration of hip hop on the stage and not in a kitschy way, but in a way that actually engages some of our classic hip hop artists and and professionals and uh, and academics in the field. You know, we were talking about the jug band Christmas. Mm-hmm. What does it look like to have some of the blues or what people call roots? on the on the on on the Met stage. You know, when you think about <laughs> when you think about, you know, what's going to get you may, not necessarily on an airplane and a hotel and to New York City, but let's just say generally, you know, you're on a work trip, you're doing a conference or something and it happens to be in New York, you have time to go to a Met performance. You know, what do you think they need to explore to have you included in that um Something for everyone. A syringe of Demerol and a gurney. Okay, but seriously, <laughs> but really, um, I, I I would go and see. There are some classics that I would go see. Mm-hmm. I like Turndote. I'm not ashamed to say it. Or like Carmen but, could be interesting to see. You know, sure. But there's new things coming. Ending. You know, <laughs> there's new things coming out. Like um, uh, Minnesota Opera recently did The Shining. Oh yeah, you know? to pull, so you pull would, us back there. Okay, yeah. so shout out to Scatman. What would it be? What, would you get dressed to go and see a, a shining opera? Or I mean, I'm 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 gonna you're dress, gonna exp- I'm gonna dress how I dress for, for anything. Yeah. First of all, but, <laughs> but you've already watched it at home once to celebrate Christmas. Yeah, I mean, but no, I, I would. I, I don't know if I would, you know, run and go see The Shining before a Malcolm X or a, or a restaging of fire, because, but I would go, I would do it. Because nothing says Christmas like an elevator 
<laughs> full of blood. That's for all, right. For all of the years y'all have tried to push, uh, what? See, I, I can't even die, die hard. hard down my throat as a Christmas movie. You know, uh, let me have The Shining, okay? You, if, I'll let you have The Shining on the opera stage if you let me have it for Christmas, okay? Sold. <laughs> but 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 anyway, you're 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 saying it, it sounds like what you're saying as far as you know being a part of this renewed audience they're looking for is a storyline that is. A little more contemporary, maybe something more edgy, something less powdered wiggish and more, you know, more familiar, a little more. There's a familiarity there. I want to bring before we go on, I want to bring in one quote here from Simon Woods, Mm -hmm. uh, president and chief executive officer of League of American Orchestras. He says the need to build new audiences is more urgent than ever. Um, Do you feel like? We're too late. Do you feel like there is still a uh, uh, a chance to to save uh, uh, an opera season, or what do you what do you, the uh, the whole company? Yeah, is it possible? Are we too late? You know, unfortunately, organizations like the Met are too late when it comes to certain individuals. I, I definitely would not go as far as to say whole communities, you know, because it's going to be some Latin, Latin folks in there. It's going to be some black folks in there. You know, that that's, that's always going to be a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And while I do think that it is too late for some folks through that community sort of, you know, aspect of it, at least you have a chance. If, If I have a friend who is just not at all interested in an opera, if I say, hey, they're playing The Shining at the Met, and and maybe that means if I really care, I have to buy the ticket even, you know, just to just to get them there. There's there's that possibility, you mm-hmm. know. So there is I think retention is the word I was looking for last uh, last week when we we're talking about return audiences. Sure. You know, sure. so you know, I I think it's one thing to get people, you know, to come for that first time. The more familiar stories and word of mouth, I think is really how retention and growth is is gonna uh come about. Too late. Not necessarily, but, you know, time almost up that as well, I will say. So, all right, well, we'll have that uh, in the description to get us to our next accidental. I think we'll hear a little excerpt from the uh, opera uh, rendition of uh, The Shining. It's music by Paul Morovich uh, with the libretto by Mark Campbell. Here's a, a little bit of uh, this opera, The Shining, to get us to our next accidental. have to put a bit of my um maturity on <laughs> because i can only imagine you know the the scene where uh jack nicholson's character is chasing uh danny through the hedge maze you know what oh, is that yeah. danny danny boy oh, or, no. you know or, or or the you know of course how can you not just stand up and give a round of applause to the operatic here's johnny you know <laughs> oh sure but, but then maybe you know the librettist and the composer have uh in this case tried to move uh closer to the book 
and not what people's uh you know sort of expectations will be mm. based on the film so you right. know there, there's all right. kind of creative stuff that can happen there but anyway all right well uh we have uh, one more accidental this week you know when we talk about media first of all the first thing i'm gonna say is that we usually uh stick to you know articles that you know come out on on various uh, uh news channels online but you know this week we have a little something different every now and again something happens on social media that really 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 just you know creates some waves makes this thing called classical music a little more interesting than it typically is and this week we definitely got a little bit of that. I want to give a shout out to Baba Tunde Akimbaboye, uh, a member of the Triloquy family and a very outspoken activist, arts mm-hmm. artsivist in the in the field. So earlier this week, on his very successful and very uh, popular social media channels, he posted a video that called out a uh, a well known black opera singer in the field. Uh, let's let just for context, let's listen to just a little of, of what Babatunde had to say here about this opera stuff. For ourselves. When young black opera singers started calling out the opera industry for their lack of diversity, he took the opportunity to essentially tell them that it's because they're not putting in the work. Get good enough to get noticed and you won't be so angry. Then you can make a difference. Apparently, some of us that were the most vocal about this equality thing had the least amount of experience or preparation. I'm not sure why that matters, but after we displace him, then we can have a real voice. And he keeps suggesting that we send him proof that we can in fact sing well because he sits on several boards. But the insinuation that there's not enough qualified black people is actually kind of dangerous and untrue. Especially coming from someone- I'll have this linked in the description. I'm trying to be um, statesman here. I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, fair and allow people to form their own opinion on their own time after viewing the video all the way down to not hear naming the person in question. So if y'all want to go see that and, and, and go and go, you know, get all the tea, I'll have a link to this video in the description. But to the person in question, Scott, when mm-hmm. I sent you this video, was this a person who whose name you knew in the world of opera or otherwise? Baba Tunde? No, the person that Baba Tunde is is speaking. No, um, I no, I did not know that name. I didn't know this person's name before uh, I began my work with the Black Opera Alliance a couple years ago. So mm-hmm. this definitely feels like a niche within a niche within a niche when we're talking about uh, black opera singers who aren't supporting other black opera singers and and that sort of thing. This is a story. This is something that we likely would never read on a New York Times or even a a local news station. This is very much a social media bit of news. How uh, important do you think it is for the arts in general to acknowledge bits of news, bits of media like this, to sort of take a look at maybe some of the not so pretty things that are going on in uh, so-called classical music? If you want to tap into the audience you don't have, it's essential. Mm -hmm. And I've been trying to say that at my job for a long time. Why do we not have a TikTok account? Why are we not following that trend? Because we're missing the boat yeah but uh excuse me most of the most of the public stations that i've worked at the it it didn't seem like their social media presence was something that was really tended and Mm -hmm. nurtured do you have any experience with that you know i did 
my best every day. My my first job down at uh, WUOT, not only to post on the social media for the uh, for the organization, but to really be in the moment and you know do hourly posts or play by plays or you know whatever. I think that extended into my job uh, at at NPR with the Music Through the Night Facebook page. Um, I think. You know, there's a, a bridge that has to be built between folks who are really great <laughs> at, at some compelling uh, or engaging social media and the people who would typically be following mm-hmm. those social media accounts. You know, the right. the, the Minnesota right. Opera did a <laughs> had had some very fun social media stuff going on around Black Friday. You know, that definitely you know created mm. new followers for them and that sort of thing. I imagine that many of their followers on social media didn't get the references that were being made. But sure, but they but they got new folks involved now. You now, know? as far as the tea itself, though. Mm-hmm. That is what I think is the new thing in classical and opera. Yeah. Because you hear hop, hip-hop artists, rock artists of, of every sort, they've got beef going yeah. all the time. Yeah. So do you think that we're going to start seeing classical beef? I mean, there, there's definitely the potential for some content to be created. I mean, the, the, the real housewives of classical music mm. or, you know, love, love and classical music. Love Baroque style. <laughs> I mean, it, look, I need to be on that show, first of all. <laughs> Do not create that show without me. But, the, we, but we have the material. You know, the, the the content is there. And I think folks like Baba Tunde, you know, are not only jumping on that from that content perspective, you know, just to, you know, engage people in a new way. While that is something that he's really great at, I think when it comes to uh, this post, the, uh, uh, this story in particular, you know, he's trying to, you know, put out a word of warning to other black opera singers and just give people on the outside of it some some tea as far as you know what happens behind the scenes you know we saw a lot uh happen as far as so-called call-out culture in 2020 and you know i will be the first to say that i think that uh we benefited from the normalization of uh call out in uh in in, in a more open and uh uh out front way especially in the arts especially in classical music mm. i wonder if you think um the sun is setting on that should we be looking at less call out culture sort of things um if we're leaning toward change or you know should we you know continue to explore what can happen what positive benefits can happen with directly stating things publicly it seems like the ones that needed to get their comeuppance and get called out mm-hmm. and have some sort of a of a reaction from their from their fans, I I think it, it was well placed. Mm-hmm. But let's take the latest Megan Thee Stallion and Tory Lanez dust up though. Mm-hmm. Someone's on Twitter. Go ahead. So no, because <laughs> there's there's a, a Calvary coming to Tory's aid yep. in this situation. Yeah. So yeah, he got called out, but is there a consequence? I mean, I mean, of, apart from his sentence, right? I mean, going there, there's going to be that, but you know, there will always be. The, the supporters. R. Kelly still has supporters out here. And then, you know? and, but they're also going and attacking Megan now. Right, right. So, uh, so a part of it is, you know, being in the public eye, especially on that level, is going to get some, yep. some fire and some heat pointed your way, no matter what you do or no matter what happens. I guess 
on the classical music side of things, we just aren't so used to, at least broadly, we aren't so used to seeing it, which I think contributes to sort of the shock value of it. It does. And that's why I'm, I was going to ask you is, don't you think we need some more of this to uh, shrug off the stereotypes that classical and opera have? You know, the only reason I hesitate is because ultimately, you know, again, Umoja today, first day of Kwanzaa, <laughs> for fuck's sake, you know, <laughs> unity is something that I actually do believe in and, and you know, think is always possible no matter what. I think, mm-hmm. you know, if, 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 if dialogue can happen, that means unity can happen. So, you know, to the, to the subject of, of this video by Baba Tunde, you know, I, you know, and he has all the receipts and the screenshots, which is also yeah. shocking to see some of the verbal abuse that was, was happening in, in, in this situation from a, from a so-called mentor. And even so, you know, I still think that there is some dialogue that, that can happen toward that unity building. Now, all of that said, I cannot deny that people love the mess. You know, yep. They, pe- pe- people are always going to be here for the drama, and if that's how we get some different folks in, in in into the circles of classical music, I guess so be it. I mean, damn, why 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 not add a little uh, a hot sauce into the chili every now and again? Yep, I told you uh, uh, a few weeks ago that one of the things I learned at that public radio conference over the summer was a key thing missing for younger listeners is the conflict, Mm -hmm. the hot take, the tea, as you say. Uh, I I think that this is part of the transition. This is just going to be part of it. Okay, now be old Uncle Scott for a second. Should we just be getting along? Do you you find room for critique of the younger generation's bloodthirst, (laughs) bloodlust for the drama? And for the and for the social media, sure. But as soon they, as I start making them, then they're going to start pointing out the things that I do. You said I don't want no smoke, and I don't want and, <laughs> and I don't want anybody coming after me just because I buy a candy at the hardware store. Yeah, <laughs> and carry a, a cloth handkerchief. Sure. Okay. Well, my my thing here, you know, and I, I know that there are going to be a lot of people who are accusing me of kind of dancing here. You know, not not taking sides. I think it's hard to deny. What Babatunde is uh, is is saying in this video about this black opera star of of note, you know, with the receipts there, it'd be one yeah, thing if it was yeah. just hearsay, but we have actual screen grabs yeah. and and personal experience to to back this up. I think you know what is being uh, put forward here is unacceptable. I think it's the responsibility of every person in the arts. Who is alleging to you know be a mentor or to be you know reaching down to pull up? You know I think it's a duty of all of those people to have some real rapport with the you know up and coming superstars, but especially the you know those of us who have had to deal with you know various systems of marginalization and 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 that sort of thing. You know black opera stars, uh, opera stars of of marginalized whatever. I think there's. And a you know a special duty there. I'll use that word duty mm. to really you know try to do your best for the next generation of black yes. opera stars. And if the, if there is evidence that you know not only are you not doing it, but you're pushing down and punching down, it's hard to be for, forgiving of that. Mm. And I would love <laughs> to have a dialogue with the person in in question here. So you know. Maybe maybe we can work on that for for 2023. But in the meantime, I just wanted to give a shout out to Baba Tunde. You know, and you, Scott, you have to applaud 
his courage because there are so many opera singers out here out. and if this yeah. and if this bullet touches your spirit that means i'm talking to you there are so many opera singers and professionals in the field even more broadly that would never ever call out this sort of 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 behavior you know and i understand you know the risks i don't want to sit on any high horse and 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 and, and do any of that no. or, or say any of that and I think it is of note to have people who are willing to really stick their neck out for the sake of other people who might need to know. Sure, you know, it's sure. not always about shaming someone. It's about a word of warning sometimes. So again, shout out to Baba Tunde. I'll have that video posted uh, in the description of this. Be sure to let me know what you think. And hey, again, the person in question, if y'all are interested in me having uh, having a conversation with them on Triloquy, help me out. Send send the email. Send send let, let's let's do what we need to do to get some dialogue going. I I would be more than interested and willing to do that from a very um, understanding place, a non-accusatory place, mm. a place that is centered on unity and unity alone. All right. Well, to get us into the uh, second movement, we're going to hear from Baba Tunde. I don't know if you remember, but we've already heard Baba Tunde give a little. Um, uh, hip hop flip to the uh, Largo Alfactotum from sure. the Barber of Seville. Well, I found a very uh, just awe inspiring rendition of the Nigerian national anthem by Babatunde. Mm. So, you know, in, in the spirit of Kwanzaa and maybe even Pan Africanism, as many of us aspire to, we're going to hear Babatunde perform this national anthem to get us into the second movement. Arise, O compatriots, Nigeria's call moving to serve our fatherland with love and strength and faith. The labor of our heroes past shall If I can make any general wish for 2023, I would love to have the opportunity to, get, to go visit the continent, go visit the motherland. Yeah. I, I think West Africa would be the most important for me as far as uh, you know ancestral connections. But of course, going to um, to South Africa would be very interesting. Seeing the pyramids would would be a thing. Mm -hmm. We we were watching a, a video today about how they. Uh, Filmed some of Star Wars in Tunisia. Right. You know, I think that's cool. It, 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 do you on your bucket list of places? Is there a spot on the African uh, continent? Well, you mentioned the you mentioned the um, the pyramids, but in South Africa, isn't there's there's some of the tallest waterfalls mm -hmm. in the world? I forget what yeah, they're called. Yeah, maybe Victoria Falls there, is one. There yeah. you go. Um, so I would probably go there. I can't think of anything else jumping out at me. You know, the, we, we all know that Australia has all of the really dangerous Pokemon, but, you know, I, <laughs> everything's but, trying to but, kill you. But, but even in Africa, I would be a little intimidated by some sort of jungle expedition going to see Victoria Falls. I think I would need to stay in the city, at least for <laughs> at least for my first trip, you know, yeah. go to the cafes, stay at the hotel. And then maybe the next time around, I can go get chased by a lion in the Jeep. 
but um <laughs> it would it would be interesting to um visit some of those cities like cairo and, yeah just historical um, and, places sure and but the things that you see in movies yeah. you know all the old famous black and white ones too mm-hmm Nothing leaps to mind except for that, though. Yeah. Well, again, shout out to Baba Tunde. Hope to make it over to the motherland one of these days. But uh, we're here in the second movement uh, now where Scott and I are going to take the second ending and uh, give a little bit of room to some music that we've been listening to uh, over the week. I'm going to get us started this week. So I mentioned my uh, Kwanzaa special. Uh, One of the pieces that I include in the special is Imani Wynn's a rendition of a tune called Afro Blue by Mongo Santa Maria. It was uh, arranged for Wing Quintet by Valerie Coleman quite uh, beautifully. And, you know, not only is it a track that I include in my Kwanzaa special because it sounds sort of Afrocentric, when I'm uh, engaging in dialogue with someone who has virtually no connection to classical music whatsoever, mm-hmm. that, you know, that's one of the recordings that I pull up, you know, really? as, as far as, you know, uh, really significant things for 2022. I've been spending a lot more time in New York this year, you know, getting to meet people and hang out with people, folks um, uh, who are, are with me in my Buddhist organization. Um, and, you know, just getting to share Imani wins with them and specifically uh, uh, their arrangement of Mongo Santa Maria's Afro Blue has has been a really great experience for me. On one of my visits, uh, you know, because in, in, in our Buddhist organization, we do home visits, you know, especially for folks who are maybe sick or might need some at-home encouragement. Anyway, on one of those home visits, I uh, pull out uh, my recording of Imani Wins's uh, uh, Afro Blue, and the person that we were visiting pulls out a version that I had never heard of. I think it was actually uh, uh, Duke Ellington or, or somebody, mm. you know, doing doing their own version of it. So now I'm, I'm going in and listening to all of these different versions of this track uh, that I had never heard of before. But, you know, I, I know the song ba- based on the arrangement. And the one that I want to share here today that I think is just so incredible um, is the one from the uh, Fantasy Records uh, 1959, uh, you know, featuring Mongo Santa Maria's Afro Blue. Maybe this the, is the original. I need to do some more research. But the sound of it is just so intriguing and engaging to me and it makes me appreciate Imani Wins's version even more you know after hearing this and hearing what they were able to do to mm-hmm. transform this into Wing Quintet anyway Mongo Santa Maria's Afro Blue from the 1959 album uh, Mongo from Fantasy Records I know I say this all the time. I hate to cut it off because it's 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 a vibe that this uh, this recording is about four minutes long. So you know if you were putting this in uh, radio programming, it's not that you know you've ruined someone's day with an hour long of something that's a little bit different. You know um, I would put this. And and what uh, you know. And sorry to get inside baseball, but I will put this in the window. 
if if I was really trying to integrate this in uh, into something, create some sort of break where I can, you know, uh, draw a connection between the idea of classical music and how we have this solely instrumental recording here that speaks to a different classical tradition. I think pieces like this, you know, are that bridge. And Imani wins was my bridge to this piece of music that I think is a bridge. So, you know, we can talk about covers, classical covers of songs that can get us to actually airing uh, these originals or putting them in our in our classical spaces. I uh, I, I usually, you know, uh, like I was saying before, listen to Afro Blue around Kwanzaa time because it's a part of, you know, the, the programming that I've done. But this recording in particular, I'm definitely going to be re- returning to and in whatever way I can integrate it into some of my upcoming radio projects. I am because when I think about a renewed view of classical music and a means of getting more people involved and uh, interested to me, this is an example of one of those tracks, one of those aesthetics mm. uh, by which we can do that. Here, here's a here's a little bit of the end of it. You know, since I since I love it so much here of uh, Afro Blue again, Mongo Santa Maria from the album Mongo. Again, we can we can make a case for this on a, a more jazz aligned uh, stage or, or 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 radio program, and that's fine. I just think there's a a, a perfect uh, argument for this to be included next to Berlioz and Brahms, especially considering that we don't have the vocal aspect. You know, we we don't have that barrier that people like to point to, or you know, mm. we're, we're talking about an instrumental track here. You know, and a, and a track that highlights uh, classical music, maybe not from the Western Euro- uh, European perspective, but you know, classical music nonetheless. Mm. I'd put it in the hour. But as as far as like one of the main features of what yeah people- you want to talk inside baseball we're going inside inside baseball on this response but you're talking about you said you'd put it in the window yeah the news window mm-hmm. and that means where we worked that means where another station out in the network might put a newscast right so if there's an important story attached to it some of the stations are going to miss it yeah so I'd put it in the hour. And, I mean, you know, I, I guess I, inside, inside I, I guess I can appreciate that call out because maybe it should go in the in the hour. I just think, you know, what I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm thinking about some of the arguments and discussions that <laughs> would, would, would surround, you know, broadcasting a piece of music like that. Yep. I think uh, a, a middle ground would be that window. It's four minutes long. Not even all the stations are going gonna get it, but yep. you know I'm I'm with you. It it should be a a main feature. So I'm gonna do that. Well, among we'll, we're gonna talk about New Year's resolutions next week, but I think among my resolutions will be to incorporate that recording into one of my so-called classical music uh, radio programs. So here Good. we go. Let's see if we can make that work. All right, <laughs> all right. What you got this week? You know how last week I brought in the Fleet Flock Fleet Foxes, and I think I stumbled on their name at the same spot last week because it was a song that I like to listen to at the solstice. Mm -hmm. And the song I'm bringing in this week is the song I like to listen to around New Year. 
It's a long December by the Counting Crows, and the front man, Adam Duritz, said this is a Christmas song. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people listen to it, and they hear the melancholy, and they think it's sad. But in my mind, I kind of hear, like, maybe you're coming up out of a down period with this song. I hear possibility. I hear the possibility of of uh, redemption or forgiveness in these lyrics. Mm. And... Uh, just uh, a sense of uh, letting yourself be yourself. A long December and there's reason to believe Maybe this year will be better than the last I can't remember the last thing that you said As you were leaving but now the days go by so and it's one more day up in the canyon It's one more night in Hollywood If you think that I could be forgiven Wish you would As the years go by, people fall away. They come into your life. They fall out of your life. You start to accept certain things you never would have believed before, like when you were in your 20s or mm -hmm. your 30s. You notice things that you wouldn't necessarily notice before and, and react to them in a different way as the years go by. That's what I think the song speaks to. And I think that, yeah, there's a melancholy to it, but there's also this feeling of, well, there's there's possibility ahead. There's always possibility ahead. You know, I uh, there are some people when, when when you talk about some people last, some people don't. There's some people who I am not taking into 2023, <laughs> and I, <laughs> and that's all I will say on that. But I I mention it to say that there's something freeing about just coming to terms with the fact that some people are temporary mm. in your life, mm -hmm. you know? And I think it makes you, it makes me even more grateful for the people who have not been temporary in my life. I have friends, you know, some of my, uh, I, I, I do, I can think of some people that I still talk to, you know, even if not every day, but still talk to that I've known since kindergarten, like that definitely exists for me. But, you know, some of my uh, best friends, my old time friends are folks that I've known, you know, since late high school and, and undergrad and, and college. And there's effort that's required in maintaining that's right. relationships. Right. You know, I, I'm, I'm guilty of sometimes not doing everything that I should, you know, to maintain certain relationships with the excuse of work, with the excuse of how busy or tired or, or, or whatever and I am. All but, that. But I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful, you know, for the, for the relationships that have lasted. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's healthy and, um, and beneficial to be able to recognize, you know, the, the proverbial uh, leaves in your life and separate them from the proverbial tree. Um, uh, what do you call it? The part that you hug. The trunk. <laughs> the trunk. Uh, <laughs> For those of us who hug. Yeah, trees. it's interesting that you make that analogy because the one of the lines in here, he says, you know, you get the feeling that it's a lot of oysters, but no pearls. Mm -hmm. But where you give up that feeling, the next line says, and then you look across a crowded room and see the way the light attaches to a girl. It's like you, okay, yeah, you, you it might, your life might not be what you wanted in some areas, mm -hmm. but 
It is in others. And I think it speaks to something that I'm going to take into 2023, which is contentment. Yeah. I'm just going to try to be more content with the things that I have and not covet that the things that I don't. I, w- I would love to hear. So we, you know, we have the, uh, the, the, this lead singer at the piano, I think not, not to t- get him out of a job or anything. It could be interesting to hear that for piano and cello mm, or, or sure. maybe even, you know, get into some of his twang and give us a little bit of piano and trombone. Maybe <laughs> there, there, there are definitely <laughs> nice. some crossovers and some, and some bridges here. And uh, while I'm not so familiar with counting crows, I have heard of that band enough to be able kind of to argue, you know, if I need to, that this is, you know, American classical, would would you, you know, as someone who I'm sure is more familiar than I am, would you, or could you make an argument for the music, at least some of the music of Counting Crows being music that we should include in this renewed idea of of American classics? Yeah, just the amount of time that they spent out in, you know, the music world, (laughs) cranking out hits Mm -hmm. and winning awards. But that was a generational defining band. Yeah. From the the late 80s and the early 90s. I mean, there were so many people that found such meaning in The Counting Crows. And I was one of them. Yeah. And the the first release, every track had a feeling like, why, how do I know this? Why do I know this feeling or this melody or whatever? It, it, It hit on something that was pretty universal in that time. Counting Crows, Long December. If you don't know it, go learn a little bit more of our American classical repertoire and check it out. I know I will. All right, well, we're getting into the third movement, and I'm very honored this week to share with y'all my conversation with VJ Iyer. I, you know, Scott, have to say, again, I already mentioned that I was spending a lot of, uh, spent a lot more time in New York this year outside of Carnegie Hall one night, you know, um, my, my job has a had a performance there. So I'm just kind of, you know, killing the five minutes that I got. And I hear, Garrett, are you Garrett McQueen? And, <laughs> oh, it's, no. and it's VJ Iyer who, <laughs> who says that I'm like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. You should not know my name. I should know your name. Anyway, <laughs> I've been a fan of VJ Iyer's um, orchestral music for years now. Um, but through our conversation and, and learning more about him, I learned that he also did uh, some jazz. So I've, I've been a so-called jazz, maybe I should say. Uh, that is one of the things we talk about in, in our conversation. But I've been checking out more of that music. Uh, VJ has a new work uh, called Human Archipelago. You know, we're talking about connection and unity uh, that's been premiered uh, by the uh, by the uh, uh, London Symphony, I believe it was, uh, with with performances happening uh, throughout January and into the new year uh, with a few American ensembles. I'll have information about that in the uh, description. But uh, to get us into my conversation with VJ, I wanted to play again some of this so-called jazz. So y'all, y'all will get to hear what uh, VJ thinks or says about uh, that idea of jazz. But this tune is called Optimism. I, I think that this is a, a really great, uh, aesthetically, a great piece, you know, to uh, round out the year with and to take into the new year. Um, but one, you know, with the theme of optimism that I think we need more of as well these days. So huge thanks to uh, everyone who made this interview possible. My conversation with the one and only VJ Iyer. Hope y'all enjoy.
Yes, it's funny. Like um, I find that uh, as a living or contemporary or so-called new music composer, among the other hats I wear, uh, when I enter into these classical music, Western classical music realms, it's often the case that they want to place it alongside works from the past to kind of validate it on the in, in those terms. And often even, I was just talking to someone else about this, that I've had this pattern of getting asked to respond to works from the past with new works of mine. Like one was Rade Rade, which was a response to Rite of Spring. It was commissioned mm-hmm. for the 100th anniversary of Rite of Spring. Um, another was uh, for Jennifer Coe, the first piece I wrote for her, Bridge Tower Fantasy tribute to George Bridgetower, and it was mm-hmm. a um, companion piece to the Kreutzer Sonata, which was, as you may know, already actually originally written for him. Right. Um, what else? I had to finish a Mozart fragment for the Brentano Quartet, <laughs> uh, an unfinished fragment. I had to write some variations uh, based on a theme by Robert Schumann for a pianist, Mishka Rashi Momin. I had to write an overture to the C major Bach cello suite uh, for Matt Heimovitz. So it's a kind of like, there's a pattern where you have to sort of situate yourself in relation to history or to the past and basically mm-hmm. like validate yourself in terms of the past. And so that's interesting. Like when we were in London for the premiere of Human Archipelago, it was, you know, it was like Wagner. <laughs> oh wow and, um, Mendelssohn you know so it was between Wagner and Mendelssohn on the program which was uh and I know that some of the programs in in um Oregon like uh, Oregon Symphony for example is pairing it with I want to say Rachmaninoff's second symphony hmm. and some other works from the past you know like that so it's like yeah I know and then like yeah it's nice when you can be on a whole program of new material or have a portrait concert, for example, where you're just presenting your own works, a spectrum of your own works as one concert. Um, but those are quite rare, as you say, and, you know, always feel like kind of on life support a little bit <laughs> compared to these gigantic events where you're, they're playing the the great chestnuts and people might endure a new piece in order to get to the the Mendelssohn or something like that. Right, right, right. You used the phrase so-called new music. I wonder if you'll (laughs) speak more to that. Has has that phrase new music become problematic? Yeah, that's definitely a phrase I use, but so-called new music, that's interesting to me. Yeah, I would have said so-called classical also. Um, Well, new music, like, I mean, I write music all the time but not all of it gets called new music. Hmm. So that's, it's really very much a, um, it's a community or a network or a space or a marketplace or something like that. That's very specific. Um, and it has named itself that to, um, to do something. I don't know, to maybe (laughs) sell itself as interesting, but part of what it's predicated on almost without fail is continuity with, European modernism. Mm. And that's why I find it 
you know, I, I find it a little tenuous as a conceit, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Um, I know that it's basically a branding exercise, but it's kind of like, um, I mean, I also do the same thing with jazz. I usually say so-called jazz or the music called yeah. jazz, the things mm-hmm. like that, you know, just to sort of put a little pressure on it or apply some, or put some distance because that's what I learned, like from all the elders who I worked with and who mentored me, none of them would routinely use the word jazz enthusiastically, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. They yeah. were all sort of like, well, they would kind of like let themselves be programmed at jazz festivals or in jazz series or at a jazz club even. But usually the way they framed what they were doing was much more expensive than that, you know? And I think jazz as a label has always reduced the mobility and the kind of possibility. Yep, yep. I wonder what your ideas are uh, when it comes to reframing, uh, you know, those branding words, as you've said. I mean, even with your own compositions, do you feel any sort of pressure or even have in mind, you know, uh, how people will engage your music as it relates to those terms? I know on the broadcast side of things, the phrase new music instantly makes people think, oh, this is going to be crunchy. This is going to be very dissonant. You know, are, are there any considerations for the language around your music when you're writing your music? Um, I don't know. I don't really think about the language <laughs> or how to frame it. I mean, because that's basically... <clears throat> That's the marketing people's job, I guess. And it's like, mm. and it's maybe my job to actually defy all of that, you know, as an artist is to like make my own choices and carve my own path, certainly informed by all these different histories and connected to all these different communities. But, um, but also like, I think it's maybe just the artist that I am. I've always been a kind of like, <laughs> it's funny yesterday was my birthday and just for, oh, happy belated thanks thanks <laughs> uh just for fun i posted all these old photos of myself like for like one from when i was a toddler one from when i was about eight or nine then a couple from when i was a teenager and it's funny like as you see it progress i get more and more emo <laughs> just a little like dri- nice. like darker but like darker and sort of affect i guess right right but it's always being channeled through the the piano you know in those photos so it's sort of like you see how i become a brooding artist you know it's really funny i start as this like gleeful toddler and then i become a more like an emo teenager (laughs) playing the piano or playing synthesizers or something so i think like there's always been a an element for me of just like resistance as a sort and, and sort of like um, kind of like melancholy. There's a certain like melancholy around systems that we have inherited or the systems we find ourselves trying to operate in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And certainly as artists of color, as people of color in the West, um, that's where a lot of that comes from, you know? So that's where a lot of the skepticism or the sort of critical distancing comes from it comes from like knowing that these systems aren't really here for us yeah 
And I often find myself, you know, experiencing some dissonance myself because I think about the systems that have been built against people of color and black people specifically in the United States. But I also think about uh, the the fruits of, of those labors. You know, we were already talking about uh, so-called jazz. I, I wonder mm-hmm. if you could uh, talk about where your affinities or, or love for, you know, those black musical traditions came from. Where was, was there jazz played in your house as a kid? Where, where did that love come from? Um, yeah, I've had to kind of like rethink a lot of that. Like, where did it come from? You know, it's been an interesting kind of... Uh, reassessment of what my affinities were as a kid because i listened to a lot of pop music and rock and soul i grew up in the 70s and 80s you know so like michael jackson prince yeah um some stevie wonder you know a lot of early hip-hop but then also classic rock like i grew up in the suburbs (laughs) so there was a lot of you know if you just turn on a radio in in suburbs of rochester new york the first song you hear is like Hotel California, something yeah. like that. Something like that. So, like, you kind of are always being fed that stuff. And then I remember there was a black station, WDKX, um, in Rochester that played a, lot, a wide range of things. You know, uh, Pointer Sisters, Stevie, mm-hmm. Marvin Gaye. You know, and then also some of the early hip hop. Whitney Houston, like a lot of different things. So, um, uh, so I remember that being this kind of like sort of intrigue for me as a sort of like, well, this is clearly like coming from another community than the one I find myself sort of embedded in, you know. And then the other thing, well, so there were a few different things. One was like I would see music on TV, which was like more common like i remember um <clears throat> like when herbie hancock did rocket at the grammys yeah. <laughs> in like 81 i think i want to say 81 or 82 because like i had seen it on mtv it was one of the only he was the only non-white people on mtv at the time but it yeah. was only like he was barely in the video you know it was only these dancing robots and then his face shows up on a television screen in the fireplace like do you remember that so um but then like the way he kind of carried himself on that stage at the grammys seeing that as a kid and like seeing all those robots you know you see these dancing robots like in the video but then they came to life and then it was like this revelation (laughs) halfway through the performance yeah but then like herbie in the middle of it with such like confidence and and um I don't know, just sort of like sass, you know? Right. And then like a Swag. few years later, I um I had been playing piano by ear growing up and I had classical violin lessons. So um <clears throat> then like my high school had jazz ensemble. So I started paying attention to that stuff a little bit more specifically, you know, and um and started uh checking out records from the library like lps and i remember seeing the same name herbie hancock and he had a band there was a quartet album he had that had come out in the mid 80s with tony williams and ron carter and young Witten and marcellus mm-hmm. it's like pretty phenomenal 
those guys were flying and it was like the level of creativity i could barely fathom you know i was like this is the same guy who did rocket i was just mm-hmm. the same person and then i started like trying to triangulate found miles davis then our older miles davis records with john coltrane or with wayne shorter and then some of the electric miles and then eventually i realized that a lot of these people were playing these tunes by Thelonious monk and so i found some of his records and then that like blew my head open because it was he wasn't doing what anyone else was doing <laughs> musically yeah. speaking compositionally the way he took up space and the music was so different you know his uh his playfulness his mystery his like the way he would shock you with sound you know and i remember seeing that film this was way before youtube of course but there was that film straight no chaser which is like one of the early documentaries about monk that came mm-hmm. out in late 80s <clears throat> and that really like seeing him play kind of put it all together for me and then i actually felt this really deep affinity to the way he played that was like oh that feels familiar to me like that feels relevant to how i touch the piano how i bang on the piano how i bounce yeah. on the piano you know how he got he gets the instrument resonating and ringing and shaking you know and um the sort of elemental quality of it you know and it wasn't about like dazzling you with a whole bunch of like fast stuff it was actually about uh, reaching in your body like that's how it felt to me it was like giving you this feeling that was like very physical was very mm-hmm. active you know so that i became kind of obsessed with him around then around that time i also was turned on to jerry allen her early stuff from the 80 late 80s that uh really shook me too so she became a huge huge and still is huge inspiration for me yeah yeah when you mentioned uh herbie hancock you know you remind me so you know i I practice nietzsche and buddhism and when i found out Mm -hmm. that herbie hancock also you know practices nietzsche and buddhism i wanted to learn everything about him and i almost could not believe the western classical origins of of his training you know his debut being with the chicago symphony i believe playing playing beethoven you know it i i I wrestle, you know, in the same way we were talking about so-called jazz, I tend to wrestle with that word classical or that phrase classical music because there are so many people who want to uh, dismiss it or, uh, you know, dissolve it, put it in a corner. But, you know, my argument is that all of the musicians that you've been talking about represent American classical music in the same that classical musics around the world are different and, de- and depend on culture. Do you, do you think right. it's worth the battle to reframe that phrase, you know, classical music being in reference to, in our American context, being in reference to folks like Herbie Hancock, or do you find yourself more on the side of wanting to just push the phrase away? I'm kind of, <laughs> I'm this weird, I'm a weirdo who hates nouns <laughs> okay so i tend to push all of these na- big nouns away but i certainly like a lot of elder musicians like billy hart you know or others from that generation people who you know certainly dr billy taylor used to talk about this 
they advanced that framing like jazz is america's classical music right it deserves to be on a concert stage it deserves to be treated with respect that was a battle you know like that that had to be fought in the 20th century um and still does you know and even like gary bartz will say stuff like that you know um so you know i respect that that has been part of that struggle like people have found different strategies to kind of frame reframe what they're doing and reframe themselves and assert uh, you know black artists have always had to kind of assert mobility when it was denied to them so like you know I deserve to be on that stage, you know, that kind of thing. I deserve to be, I'm composing too, you know, that kind of thing, which like, <clears throat> you know, so that's been a, I mean, it's been wonderful. I guess what I can say about what's been called new music of late mm -hmm. is that it has become, it has been making efforts to become more inclusive of different of people from a lot of different backgrounds and using a lot of different methods, you know, including methods that come from other cultures besides Western classical music culture. Right. So like, you know, someone like Roscoe Mitchell can write orchestra pieces or Wadada Leo Smith can write orchestra pieces or Nicole Mitchell can write orchestra pieces and they might be put together with very different strategies different aesthetics you know different techniques even um different uh systems different ordering systems yeah. and that's you know and like i learned from a lot of the like the a lot especially a lot of the aacm artists who i was lucky to be i have still am lucky to be kind of in the world with and mentored by George Lewis and Th Henry Threadgill, Roscoe Mitchell, mm -hmm. Wadada Leo Smith, Muhal, Richard Abrams, Amina Claudine Myers. Um, you know, I got to see their sort of like up close, I got to witness the fearlessness with which they would enter these spaces that were not, that didn't have them in mind, you know, sure. <laughs> and then yeah. like assert that their work deserves to be there and deserves to be taken as seriously as any of the other stuff that's on that stage. Yeah. So that's like, you know, and I remember getting advice from like Roscoe and Muhal about my first piece for um, string quartet and piano with myself on piano, where I was sort of like, this is the piece that is called Mutations, Mutations 1 through 10 on the album mutations um i wrote that back in 05 or 04 05 and um i remember at that time i was sort of like um kind of worried about fitting in you know like oh well will this be taken as a kind of like valid form of or a valid use of the string quartet <laughs> and he mm -hmm. was, and they were just so they disabused me of those kind of like concerns pretty quick they're like sure. you know just figure it out for yourself on your own terms well, anything you bring to whatever you bring to them is something they won't have already you know and that's what matters so that has been really um a long time source of inspiration for me that whole community of artists who are associated with what's called the creative music movement you know mm -hmm. oliver lake is another one 
Um, I didn't know that he had like stacks and stacks of string quartets that he had written that could fill like two evenings of music, you know? I didn't know uh, that either. Wow. Yeah. Until, you know, I was like, oh yeah, I got these. You just like pulled them out of his back pocket, you know? <laughs> it's like, um, and yeah, Wadada has talked a lot about that. And I'm just seeing him in action with these different kinds of ensembles, getting them to really rethink their own assumptions about what they're doing, you know? Mm-hmm. It's just given me a lot of confidence to approach things with on my own terms, you know? A and lot of which re- is influenced by them, of course. Yeah. And that relationship between, you know, so-called classical music, creative music, and uh, identity or race, you know, that that's definitely a, a big thing that's happening in, in the arts these days. But um, when it comes to your piece, Human Archipelago, I, I've also, I also find it really interesting to think about how the arts engages things like climate change and, and those conversations in the same way that many people, you know, love it or hate it, had a so-called racial awakening in 2020. <laughs> I feel like I had a similar thing when it comes to the issue of climate change. I watched that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio documentary and I was like, oh, wow, this is something that matters. I, I wonder if you had that moment or if it's a thought you've always had, climate change and 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 our planet that we live on. Well, I think what has really <clears throat> kept me very close to that issue, increasingly so, has been having a child. Hmm. You know, like my daughter is now 17. Gen Z is so mad at us, rightfully so, because like we have not given them a future, you know, like, and and they do not trust us. And so just seeing that play out on this generation wide scale, (laughs) they're like, okay, you guys don't care if we die. Like, that's what you're doing to us right now, to the planet. You know, you failed to act on gun violence after Parkland. You know, you failed to, you managed to get a diabolical, pathological liar, con artist, elected president. You guys did this. <laughs> we mm-hmm. didn't do this. We were kids, you know? So, um, so they see us kind of like messing up and they hold us to it. You know, they're like, this is on you, you guys. We have to just grow up and deal with, the harms that you have visited on this planet and on all of us. So I think like, and also teaching, I think it's just like, it's kind of like very vivid, you know, because you're always thinking about people's futures, you know, as a parent, you're thinking about that. And as a teacher, you're thinking about that, like, well, and then meanwhile, you see extremes of, you know, like climate extremes, like heat waves, floods, you know, tsunamis, you know, like tornadoes and like unlikely places, you know, hurricanes, all this destruction. And then like the, you know, seeing all these uh, most vulnerable communities being essentially abandoned by these systems that purport to take care of us. So that's like, you know, it's just been like wave after wave of it. And, and it just feels all the more uh crucial because you know maybe yeah sure like you and i will die in the next 40 or 50 years <laughs> like yeah. what about what about all these kids who have to then deal with what we have left 
So, so yeah, that's been a kind of burning more and more, I'd say increasing over the last few years, kind of like burning issue. So with those things in mind, I wonder if you'll talk about the development of human archipelago. As you were writing, did you, you know, feel all of these Gen Z fingers pointing at you? Was it a sense <laughs> of sorrow? What, what, what surrounded your writing this piece of music? Well, it was actually like for me, you know, I'm good friends with Tedra Cole, the writer, and he'd written this book called Human Archipelago that is about this, the kind of like entwined, entangled issues of climate change and mass migration. You know, you have all these climate refugee populations. Um, sometimes it's not even framed as such because the media sort of lack the vocabulary to name it, you know? Hmm. Um, and so it's like a, a book of text and photographs that sort of, you know, you know, very intimate portraits of refugees, actually, like photographic portraits of refugees in motion or in their displaced environments. And um, knowing that that's what brought them there was some kind of uh, fleeing floods or fleeing drought or fleeing, um, you know, just like just global destruction, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of, their, of their environments. So, and you know, the wars around oil are a part of this too. Um, so yeah, these were, I mean, some of it was just like working through that text and those images and just sitting with these faces and these phrases, you know, and being, and not necessarily wanting to make a an exact parallel to that book or anything like that, but just sort of sitting with those truths, you know, and trying to, um, I don't know, trying to work with the idea of precarity, I guess, as a sort of um, motivating force in the piece. Um, and so that's like, you know, it's a cello concerto, of course, and it is sort of like there is the, it's organized in a way that foregrounds a soloist with an orchestra and, um, but then there's this other population in the mix. There's a group, um, unspecified instrumentation, I call them the travelers <laughs> in the score, and they only play by ear. I've given them some constraints so that they they have a sense of how to work together. Sure. But basically they create their own parts and they're, they don't have music stands. You know, they're just sitting in the orchestra in front near the soloist. Um, so it has a almost like a concerto grosso kind of format, but they are doing something pretty different from anyone else. And then it's about how that those precarious forms that they generate, how they fit into the system and into the larger system of the orchestra and the soloist. Like who was the protagonist and who are these mysterious figures who are also doing something that seems to matter, that seems to, there's like a kind of urgency in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and an interdependence. Uh, and it's inherently unpredictable. That's the part of that's basically what I wanted to do. And this is something I've learned from all the people I mentioned before is like, how do you um, make space for the unknown in your music? You know, make space for the unforeseen and make that a feature of what's happening so that it pins everyone to the present and makes everyone listen in a different way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, part of it for me is like, um, there's not a lot of listening that happens in orchestras. I mean, I that's like a hard <laughs> You're thing. right. You're right. But it's like, you know, compared to chamber music, for example, it's so interdependent and so interactive. It's all about listening, you know. Um, Because of the scale of the orchestra and the nature of orchestration, it tends to be like, well, just follow your instructions and stay in time with the foreman up front and Mm -hmm. and, um, you'll be paid. You know, like that's (laughs) So it's not... There's not that level of like um, buy-in, you know, to what's happening. It's really like, well, uh, I'm a cog in this machine, and I'm not, you know, this is sort of alienation that happens for those players, I think. So this is a sort of like I wanted to let players opt in to this other role. Hmm. And all I have to do, all they have to do is self-report as having good ears. And we have like four to six such players. It's going to be different every time, um, different instrumentation every at every orchestra. You know, I put some constraints on what kind of instruments they could be, just so that it balances well. But um, it's a pretty open-ended scenario, and then it's kind of like, how does everybody relate to this presence of the unknown, to this like precarious? form that emerges in the co- in the context of an otherwise very organized piece. Yeah. And when you speak to the collaborative uh, nature of the piece, I can't help but to uh, think about uh, Inval Siegev, who mm-hmm. you know, offered the premiere. I actually happened to be sitting next to her at the concert that I saw you yes. in at Carnegie. Yes. So it was it yes. was cool to uh, speak with her. But you know, yeah. again, when it comes to collaboration, were, were you writing this piece of music um, with her in mind specifically, what was this a collaboration between you and and the cello soloist? Yes, it was. I mean, in the sense that um, I had a sense of what she is good at. You know, she's good at she's great at many many things, but in particular, I learned because I wrote a she like as a warm up um, sort of gesture. I think like we I wrote she had me write a duo piece for us that. Um, we recorded that came out on an album she put out last year. I think the album's called 20 for 2020. <laughs> and um, it was very much one of these pandemic projects. It's sort of like, well, let's see what we can do together under these confined circumstances. And that was, you know, so it was like, a, I wrote this piece that we played together. And so I got, so in the course of preparing that, writing it, sitting with her recordings and then rehearsing with her and getting a sense of how she listens, how she plays, how she interacts. Um, You know, I learned that she has perfect pitch and in fact that she can kind of 
basically match whatever she hears instantly, you know. And quite a few players do. It's not a big deal. Or they have really exceptional relative pitch, which is like what I have, you know. And I don't know if it's exceptional, but it's like I had to learn how to, like, figure out um, the changes to a song in one chorus, you know, (laughs) things like that, (laughs) you know, just by listening to it and be like, okay, I got it. Let's go. You know, (laughs) I had to learn that like 30 years ago on the job playing at jam sessions, you know? So, um, so I can kind of like make my way by ear. And that's most of what I do as a pianist really is I, um, you know, I try to train my ear so I can reach deeper into something, but like, but it, a lot of it is just summoning from within in that way and relating to what's around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, noticing that she could do that, I was like, oh, well, that gives us some options that are not usually present in orchestral or concerto type of music, this sort of more interactive possibility or format, you know? So, um, I already had this idea of the travelers, but then knowing that she could kind of merge with them became something that mattered. So then I could build that into the form, actually, that she could mm-hmm. kind of, uh, as a soloist, merge with the travelers. And then that would have a sort of narrative force to it when that happens, you know, in the context yeah. of the piece. Yeah. There's so many aspects of, you know, the platforming and the creation of this music that typical concert goers don't always see. I think uh, the commissioning and funding side of it is, you know, one of one of those in particular. Um, I do understand that Human Archipelago um, was in part the result of New Music USA's Amplifying Voices program. I, I wonder if generally you can just speak to the role that uh, service organizations have played in your career and unless you know you've been able to walk straight up to the front door of an orchestra and get them to play your pieces <laughs> oh i wish no not yet this is this is um yeah i mean it it's worked in different ways i mean like when i first came to new york i was playing some gigs around town and stuff and i soon realized like okay this isn't gonna cut it in terms of just getting through the year or getting yeah. through the month you know sure then I started looking at different funding organizations, grant giving, you know, like grants for composers, for example, or grants for ensembles, or and what was the, what were the systems by which we could do that as so-called jazz people? Yeah, <laughs> you know. And then I started thinking beyond the existing confines because there weren't a lot of grants that made themselves that seemed to welcome jazz people doing jazz things like having if you have a your own band and you're writing music for your band and going to play it at, even if you like partner with a nonprofit like the jazz gallery which i did many times early in my new york years uh, which is a nonprofit one of the few jazz nonprofits i guess the other elephant in the room in New York is Jazz at Lincoln Center, which is also a nonprofit <laughs> technically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was easier to sort of say, like, well, can we partner on this grant? You know, you could be the fiscal conduit and let's see if we get some money to make something. And then that might buy me like a month or two of 
living so I could actually write and work on music and make something that wasn't just sort of obvious. You know? Right. It took some time to develop. And um, so I started, you know, I remember like Mary Flag would carry charitable trust, the um, uh, back then Meet the Composer, the Jerome Foundation, uh, Asian American Arts Alliance, um, the uh, well, Creative Capital. Um, I was one of the, I think I got either the first or the second wave of Creative Capital grants from like 20 years ago. Um, or in what language the project with Mike led. So sometimes it was like partnering with an institution and saying, well, what do you, what can we do together? And how, and like maybe it sort of doesn't live in any category, you know, but just through working together and bringing these resources together, we can um, buy ourselves some time, do something interesting that doesn't really exist yet or that doesn't have any sort of like obvious precedent even and and rehearse it and so like yeah i mean like that was kind of how one of the ways that i operated in my early years in new york um and so like often it was interdisciplinary projects then i think the first time that i uh got commissioned to write for a string quartet, this is a piece I was talking about earlier, Mutations, that was through American Hall, but I think there was some funding from one of these, maybe it was the Cary Trust, one of those. Um, so that uh, gave me a chance to try something really new, because it was like, for me anyway, like a piano and string quartet piece that they're not coming from where I'm coming from. So how do I bridge that gap? So then that became like the format of the piece, actually, it was like, how do we bring in these principles of variation that I'm very used to as an improviser that composers also use and that classical players can actually implement in different ways. If you give them like very careful instructions, you can have these open scores that are open, you know, and I'd studied like, how did other composers do that? How did mm -hmm. Pauline Oliveros do it? How did Steve Reich do it? How did you know, these different um, American mavericks. <laughs> How did sure. they? But anyway, yes, it was always through like working with both with some sort of presenting organization and some sort of funding organization that was supporting the arts. And then knowing that that would exist in parallel to the stuff I did in the jazz business, you know, it's sort of like a very different stream of activity from running around with my trio and playing in clubs or in jazz festivals, for example. It's a very different market. You know, it's a very different system of uh, support. So, and then like learning that uh, we could kind of live in all those worlds that we could, uh, and that, you know, they wouldn't always know about each other, <laughs> but that was okay. Yeah, because I knew that for me it was all coming from the same place, and um, yeah, so it's you know it was nice. I think when Inbal approached me, she had been in contact with Vanessa Reed from from New Music USA, I think, right? And yep. um, 
And that was, in fact, it was that she who made the introduction, in fact. And that was how this kind of got off the ground. Um, and I know there's a lot of um, coordinating between them and these different orchestra music directors, and then also my publisher, Shot Music, who also get in the, get involved in managing this whole process and keeping it smooth and streamlined and building a consortium of commissioners so that it becomes possible for me to sit down for like six months and write a piece, you know, yep. not nine months or something, you know, like I spent the whole first half of this year writing this piece. Wow. Wow. So while we have the ears of the commissioners and the funders, I wonder if there's anything that's in development right now, you know, the, the sketches of something that you're working on currently. Well, there's a, a few things I have um, in the queue, I guess I'll put it that way. One is sure. a, a solo piece for Vicky Chow, the pianist, um, for Disclavier, actually, which is, you know, the piano that is also kind of a player piano, like mm -hmm. maybe. You know, you can control it with electronics. So that's a sort of, um, I don't know, cybernetic <laughs> themed piece. I'm kind of still developing that. Then I'm doing a piece for Shai Wozner, the pianist, and Echo Chamber Orchestra for next fall. And then also a piece for soul percussion with myself playing with them. That will happen at the end of next year. Awesome. So those are the those. That's the handful of pieces that I can rattle off off the top of my head. There's probably more <laughs> I'm forgetting, um, but that's sort of the next year, I'd say. Um, and then in the meantime, I have other recordings in the can, and you know, I have a, a project with the vocalist Aruj Aftab and bassist Shazad Ismaili that's coming out in March. So we'll be out and about with that album, Love in Exile, it's called. And also I made another trio album with Linda Mehan O oh and Taishan Sori. So that's also in the mix somehow. Kind of thread the needle with yeah, all these yeah. things. <laughs> oh, and one other thing I should mention, which is that um, BMOP recorded a few of my orchestral works. So one is the violin concerto I wrote for Jennifer Coe. Then there's a piece for strings and percussion and a chamber orchestra piece. So they recorded them all, and that's supposed to come out sometime next year too. Awesome! Great, yeah. great to hear that. There's so much on your on your plate and on your calendar. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, can't, kind of can't believe it. I'm not sure how I'll live through the next twelve months, but I'll. I'll be careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, for what it's worth, same. Uh, <laughs> yes, please, please. I'll uh, I'll uh, wrap uh, wrap us up, you know, by just pulling on that uh, thread. You know, you're mentioning these recordings. I've found that you know the the thirst and acceptance of again so-called new music across broadcast systems, you know, streaming and radio. It seems uh, to be happening a little quicker than on the live concert front as as someone who exists both in the recording world and the live performance world do you see one um moving faster than the other what do you see as the relationship between those two mediums for sharing music i think there are very different systems in those different contexts i mean 
I think um, as long as there's been this thing called jazz, there have been records, you know, and 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 so a lot of how it circulated was at a distance in that way, you know. Um, I remember saying at the beginning of the pandemic, well, we already have our socially distant way of sharing music. It's called a recording. Yeah. <laughs> I suggest you guys buy some, you know. Um, and uh, and then also there's always, and historically anyway, although things have shifted quite a bit as the terrain has shifted in the music, in the record business specifically, but there's always been a certain kind of relationship between record companies, the bigger record companies and the concert world in jazz, which is that, you know, if you have an album out, it, the, the a record company, one of their jobs is to support it when you're touring, you know, so like to kind of take out ads in those marketplaces, in those mm-hmm. cities, in those cities where you're, where you're touring, you know, or, or like show up with a bunch of CDs or LPs to sell at the gig, you know, things like that, that actually is like, they're, they're getting to where you're going, they're meeting you there and supporting what you're doing. So then you can, um, and it's partly because like this music is just hidden from the general public, you know, like you can't yeah. just, I mean, everybody knows about the new Taylor Swift record, but the, <laughs> who knows about the new Steve Lehman record? Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. And like, so you kind of, it's, it's really been concealed from public view. Um, and so there's always, these have been these kind of workarounds because it hasn't had the benefit of even the airwaves, particularly, um, with orchestral or, or with classical Western classical music, um, and the, its relationship to the record business. I mean, I think at the very elite echelons, like Deutsche Grammophon, mm-hmm. people, <laughs> people who are kind of like yep. in that world. Um, that's similar in that sense that it kind of works together, the record business and the concert business. They're like, they, they're symbiotic, you know? Um, I think when it comes to these, um, you know, smaller scale ventures, (laughs) like a lot of what's called new music and, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's very, it's not, they don't proceed it so much hand in hand like that, I don't think. Um, it varies. I mean, I was just talking to Andy Akiho a few weeks ago, and, um, you know, that piece Seven Pillars has become this like workhorse for him. Like the sandbox percussion are touring the hell out of that piece. <laughs> They're mm-hmm. like playing it 20 or 30 times this year. They just did it with a choreographer who, and they do the whole thing from memory, you know, so it's this kind of like event. It's a real stunt that they pull. Um, so sometimes when you get, sometimes it's more like you partner as a composer, you partner with a performer who's going to champion the piece, you know? And I mean, that's, and then part of that is recorded, getting it recorded, getting it performed. Um, and I feel like in the classical music world, like, getting an orchestra piece performed means it's going to be performed in front of a thousand or 2000 people or something. And that means um, it might not sell that many records. Um, I think it sells even less than a lot of jazz records sell, 
but mm. it's kind of like it's in people's ears and in people's bodies in a different way you know um so i think it it uh, has a way of having its own impact um that's deeper and even maybe in a lot of ways older than the record business you know like uh shop music it, it kind of just dawned on me like oh shop music is this ancient company you know mm-hmm. i've been with them several years and Norman Ryan from Shot came to London for the premiere of the concerto. And he's like, yeah, I popped over to the Shot music store here and I'm going to the one in Germany, which is the original. And they're still on the same plot of land that they were on in the 1700s. (laughs) So like these companies are centuries old, you know, this is way older than the record business. And it's a very different system of, of um, dissemination and of, um, of uh, sharing. bit there of a uh, human archipelago uh, rehearsal clip there from the London Philharmonic Orchestra, the London Philharmonic featuring cello solos in Balsigiv, who I had the pleasure of meeting yeah. this year, you know, sit next to her at a, a Carnegie Hall uh, concert, you know, incredible things to happen in, in, uh, in, in 2022. I, you know, when I think about, um, you know, my, my first ideas of who VJ was as an artist, you know, a composer, an orchestral uh, musician, and for that to expand into a person who uh, not only has written so-called jazz, but connects his creativity, his compositions to things like uh, uh, climate change and 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 social issues. In the you know in the interview, one of the things that uh, he talks about is uh, how having a daughter changed his perspective on the world that we're leaving. You know, in 20, 30, 40, 50 years for the for the next generation you know among my maybe my light affirmations or or light resolutions for the new year maybe you know i need to find ways to be a little bit more um environmentally co- uh, conscious we definitely recycle in this house uh where you know i have a car but we're public transit users so you know there's there's a bit of that but you know there, there there's always a little bit more room to do a, a a little bit more what what do you think about you know taking um environmental concerns into our next years i'll say you know in new york there's a there's actually a countdown clock um down by union square yeah. you know that that shows just how much time we got left you know before it's just irreparable isn't it like 11:57 right now or something, something like that some, something like that yep. are, are are there areas that uh you have shifted over years prior when it comes to being a little bit more environmentally conscious and maybe areas in which you could expand to be even more, more so. Absolutely. There's things like I'm uh, now that I'm the one paying the electric bill, I'm (laughs) looking at what an appliance uses as I'm starting to, you know, replace appliances. And because those, because those five, 10 minutes on that space heater add up. I'm telling (laughs) you, if you're doing that, you're doing that a couple of times a day. (laughs) Right. But really uh, for me, it was water. You know, mm. I spent, I don't know how many- beer you brewing? I, well, there's that. I've I've wondered how many gallons of beer does it really take to produce five gallons of, of beer? Mm-hmm. You know, it's probably going to take 
30 to wow. produce five gallons by yeah. the time you talk about you know cleaning and all that other sort of but you know how i had all that elaborate landscaping around my house yeah. and i had a sprinkler system well guess what i don't have the cash I don't have the disposable income anymore to run the sprinklers every other day to make sure that all the plants look nice. Right, right. So that's where I'm looking is, you know, uh, the, being judicious about that. Yeah, the the lawn looks dusty and brown, but I ate that month. <laughs> Listen, and then, you know, I, I know that you have done some planting, some light gardening in the past. Yep. Maybe that's something that more people can have the courage to reach into. And, I, you know, when I say have the courage, really, I'm speaking to myself because I'm not great at keeping plants of all of my talents. You know, a green thumb is one of the things that goddess did not really give me. Really? But, okay. you know, there, there's, you know, there, there's always an opportunity to learn and to do a little bit more, you know, even uh, in the in the arts field. And uh, VJ is helping us, you know, grab uh point our attention uh toward that so huge shout out and thanks to vj Iyer for uh being uh on the last opus of triloquy for 2022 all right well we're getting into the last triloquy for uh 2022 and we were kind of you know as far as transition music here scott we were trying to uh identify areas in which our most listened to tracks for mm -hmm. the year sort of uh intersected there you know there was an intersection at um beyonce of course and we talked about a few other things, but what we uh, ended up sort of centering on uh, was the album Cheat Codes. I wonder if you could just give folks a little bit of a, a refresher about um, what this album was and how you came to bring it to Triloquy, because you you put me on, actually. Right. Uh, Black Thought is uh, a member of, is it Jimmy Fallon's band with uh, Questlove, right? Maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure, because th there's been some recent... Shakeups and yeah, all that. job uh, transitions. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right. But anyway, um, Black Thought teamed up with producer Danger Mouse. And for me, it was this love letter, this uh, love mixtape from uh, the late 90s, early aughts. You know, mm -hmm. this revisitation of, of uh, just the sound that was part of my... <laughs> rudderless days yeah. uh, in the old market of Omaha, Nebraska, and, you know, uh, sowing those wild oats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, for me, it just, it felt like a, uh, listening to the album felt like a time capsule of That's of another good way to, just yeah. a, Or like, not a time capsule, but like a snapshot of something that sure. is really important that happened. And it may have been a flash in the pan for a lot of people, but it's something that we will be returning to. I think Cheat Codes is definitely a great example of a classic, something that will be revisited in, uh, in years in the future, even if it didn't get a whole bunch of attention that i mean i think it got plenty of attention don't don't get me wrong but i think uh celebration of this music um the biggest celebrations of this music anyway are yet to come so you know i, I will ag agree i think it's uh this is a, a very good uh intersection in our most listened tracks for 2022 so here's a little bit uh from that album a track here called identical deaths featuring danger mouse and black thought from again the album cheat codes bravo to the both of you and everyone on this production team, a little bit of this to get us into the final movement of this week's opus. I 
was proven effective by a clinical test for living many lives, dying identical deaths. I thought, why? How could this have ever been if I'm blessed? Then I had a talk with God that was interview West. He said, Reek, as near as the West and far as the East, there's a warrant for your arrest by the karma police. The Dharma was deep. I thought it was too dark to defeat, but made it here to tell a story by the chalk of my teeth. I'm a survivor, a thriver, a husband and a father. I rise with every morning and starving another saga in Paya Moss. Fear of God, Obelichiaga. Viva to either La Resistance or La Raza. I met the monster on the rooftop of the plaza. The teleprompter said it's still an Oscar to conquer. My witch doctor asked me what's blocking my chakra. I told him it was probably caffeine, chronic, and vodka. I need a word with a sponsor that won't be heard in a concert. And this is one of the things about hip hop. It's not my uh, Twitter uh, bio thing anymore, pin tweet. I forget what it was. But basically, you know, when people talk about, uh, you know, hip hop, the complexity therein is just not noted. Not only are we talking about complex production and, and musical things that are happening, the lyrics themselves, one of the, a bit of the lyrics that we just heard, it said, then I had a talk with God that was interview-esque. He said, Rick, as near as the West and far as the East, there's a warrant for your arrest by the karma police. The Dharma was deep. Our daughter was too dark with defeat, but I made it here to tell you the story by the chalk of my teeth. Like there, right. there is a lot in there, you know, and I, I think, you know, when we talk about classical music, when we just use that phrase, we have to, you know, and I can, we can repeat ourselves till we're blue in the face here on this podcast. And if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. We need to actually broaden that definition, especially to include things like hip hop. It hasn't been uh, uh, created or, or it can't be originated from anywhere but the United States, specifically the Bronx and New York in 50 years, you know, 49 and a half years as we're taking this. But this summer in 50 years, it has become not only the predominant musical genre of the world, but a broader culture that has impacted so much. How dare we build walls to keep it out of our, our so-called classical spaces? I hope that we can continue and and, uh, and and to, you know, normalize that bit of, a, of the conversation because there's a lot. I can't remember if the new Kendrick Lamar our uh, album came out this year, if, if that was 2022, but there's music in there that could very easily, I feel like that album could be performed in a chamber music space. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's just so much of this that we need to, you know, continue to, you know, repeat and repeat and repeat just to get that, that concept normalized in, in people's minds. Anyway, incredible album. I'm going to put that record on after we get done uh, recording here in a, cool. in a few minutes. But um, we're, we're hearing the trilogy. This is the final trilogy of 2022. And I wanted us to sort of be a little bit uh, reflective about the, the year. Um, for New Year's Eve, you know, we've all made plans. I guess we're going to be putting on coats and uh, long underwear and stuff. But to go gather around a fire and to write things that we're leaving in 2022 um, so that we can move forward with as as positive, as refreshed as an outlook as possible. I think I still need a little bit of time to figure out what specifically I'm writing on note cards to put into the fire. Um, but I'm curious if there was anything that came top of mind for you when this idea was uh, presented. So what would I write if I'm trying to be more content with mm-hmm. what I have in my own situation, et cetera, et cetera? So, so what so what maybe would you I write com- so maybe you write complaining on a on a card. Oh no, to, that's, to not be gonna, that's not gonna stop. <laughs> that's not gonna stop. Um 
I I uh, I want to leave behind envy. Mm, okay, okay, that's a good I, one. I want to leave behind um, jealousy. Yeah, I know I have brown eyes, but a lot of times they can be green. Okay, um, that's what I would leave behind. I think when I'm thinking about what I'm, you know, so you 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 started with a positive, you know, be, being more uh, content in the new year. I think one of the things I need to think about for the new year is how to continue the momentum in a different way. So I guess what I'm writing on a note card, at least for now, proverbially speaking, to leave behind um, are expectations or, mm. you know, my own plans or, <laughs> mm-hmm. or, or, or different things. You know, the, the nonprofit um, industrial complex, as it were, has really been challenging me this year. And I, I really am so grateful for a lot of the positive impact that I've been able to have uh, in the arts, both here on Triloquy and in my many other things. You know, I want to use my time and my energy in the best way possible. And when I think about the decolonized sort of, you know, train that I'm trying to ride and, and live through my life, I think I just need to challenge myself to um, to expand that a little bit more, maybe in a way that I wouldn't always have expected, but in a way that can benefit me and benefit other people. For mm. example, what we were talking about earlier today, the idea of starting a work day at noon and and really introducing that, especially in this hybrid office sort of world we live in. I've been thinking about what words maybe do I need to say to to my boss at at ACO about what it would look like to have at least no meetings before noon or even the expectation that the work will get done, but we can't really hold, we can't always hold traditional office hours because let's face it, Scott, sometimes I want to get up and after I do my chanting, maybe it would be great for me to take a walk or get some sort of exercise. Maybe, you know, I would enjoy um, grabbing a bite to eat at, at the local diner that closes at 10 a.m. every day or whenever it closes. And then by the time 11 o'clock or noon rolls around, I'm ready to spend the next, you know, six, seven, eight hours really focused on what I'm doing instead of the first thought when I wake up in the morning being, okay, let me rush and get as much crammed into this hour right. that I have before I have to, you know, jump on the horse for the day. I, you know, I'm, I'm naming that as one example. And maybe I need to think about what needs to go on. On a note card, maybe I need to write fear on a note card. No or, fear, or um, or uh, really more specifically, fear of dissonance or fear of no, or or, or those sorts of things. I, I think you know that's that that's what I'm working toward, and what I hope more of us will work toward when we talk about new audiences, new approaches to the arts. I think it's fair to include in that new approaches to the way that we work within the arts. If we can all be happier in <laughs> in our in our various corners of mm. of this work, maybe that means the work will happen more expediently. Maybe that means the work um, will happen uh, in a in a more focused way because you know we we've taken the time to to do the other things in our life. I don't, I don't know how have you how have you uh, worked to you know, make your work-life balance, your work existence a little, you know, more bearable, considering that it's been a long time since you've done a nine-to-five thing. You've always been on a on a, a less typical work schedule. But, you know, what, what, what are your words to those of us who are in the nine-to-five, you know, sort of game working to, you know, convince others that maybe there's a different way that we can go about 
that aspect of art's work um, toward a healthier lifestyle, healthier work-life huh. relationship? I'm not sure because I feel like I do something work-oriented just about every day. Yeah. And a lot of the projects that I work on need that daily massaging. Mm-hmm. They need that daily contact. Yeah. And I take that into account when I'm figuring out my hours for the week. But one of the ways that work from home has been great for me is that if I get into a mode, I'm producing something and I'm in the groove, I can sit there and do 10 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And normally I would not be able to sit there and do that. So it's great for that aspect of it. But I guess what I would work on is separating it because the line between my work and my private life has is become very blurred. Mm. Yeah. That's a struggle that I've been having as well. There are there are parts of that that I don't mind. For example, you know, we were talking about VJI or seeing me on the sidewalk. That's fine, you know, and if we want, if we need to talk about triloquy or talk about, you know, any other sort of work in that aspect, that's great because that's what I've dedicated my life to. Um, there is something about, you know, letting the emails stack up on this, you know, holiday yep. of, of ours that yep. gives me a little bit of anxiety, but I've been forcing myself to say no. I even did a few type deletes <laughs> to, to today, like, oh. no, I'm actually going to, you know, honor taking a little bit of time off so that maybe that's another thing that i'll write down on a note card and and throw in in, into the fire um unwillingness to to stop for a second you know to to take a break i don't know All, all sorts of things for us to explore but overall i think it's been a very cool year i mean i got to conduct an opera this year i've met all sorts of uh composers that i never thought that i would meet you know, this podcast of ours is continuing <laughs> to grow. And <laughs> I only laugh because whenever there's a mess, people love to to tag me or tag the Triloquy account. <laughs> mm. <laughs> just to, to, you know, just to let us know, just in case you didn't see that this is something that's <laughs> happening. So, yep. you know, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm just very proud of, um, you know, the, the solid foundation that we've been able to build as, you know, a part of the dialogue, a part of the commentary of of uh, of of arts, not only arts change and DEI, but just the arts in in general. I think it's really great work that we've done um, this year, and I'm looking forward to some some really great uh, continued rest in in this Do you know it, week man. between Christmas and and New Year's. Any any uh, parting words before we uh, leave everyone and 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 see them on the other side? I would point you to the lyrics of Long December and try to, uh, like I do, find the positivity to counterbalance the time when you don't feel the positivity. How about that? Amen. Yes. But that, 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 uh, that uh, mud and lotus ratio that we were yeah, you talking about. Yeah, you said it a little bit better than I did, but thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone. Hope y'all have a happy new year. Uh, hope y'all have a continued uh, happy Kwanzaa. And hey, We'll see you next week on the other side.